Good morning again. Um, did you leave your watch up here from last week, Brian? Or is this just a nice little gift for me? <laughs> nice that wasn't a, that wasn't a suggestion. Uh, There's no alarm clock. I like clock. that. I like that. That's really big. <laughs> it's good to see everybody today. I missed you last week. Um, Interesting being away in, in a different church on uh, Sunday. I just you feel like a part of you is missing. I miss being with you and enjoy being with you so much. I'm thankful that we're here. Um, looking forward to continuing Revelation 7 with you and going along in this book. Um, y'all continue or also pray for Chuck. Uh, he is out. Uh, Robin's father. Ellie's husband is in the hospital this morning. She took him over to the hospital. Ellie did. So let's pray for him, too, in our, our time before we get started here. Um, but it is good to see everybody this morning. Let's go ahead and uh, begin with prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, we do uh, think of Chuck before we start. We pray that you will be with the doctors, give them wisdom, and Lord, we pray for quick healing to be your will, Lord. We, we know that you are good and gracious and kind, and you're able to minister to this couple um, who are dear to us, Lord. We pray that you will help him to recover quickly from his uh, breathing uh, problems that he's having. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you now as we study your word that we get to get a glimpse of you. We pray that you will help us to understand better your word and that we won't go, go and just uh, be gatherers of knowledge, but that we will be changed by your word. We will realize the magnitude of your glory and that we will leave wanting and longing and desiring to serve you with all of our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Alright, the tendency for us is to elevate, as mentioned before, one of God's attributes over another. As we study the wrath of, wrath of God in Revelation 6 through 19, we might be tempted to fall into that same trap of going around preaching about God and sharing about God His wrath to come and talk about it all the time. But in perfect harmony with God's character... He has interludes or uh, sections within the wrath where he stops and backs off and shows that he is a merciful God. And chapter 7 is one of those chapters where he gives us an interlude to, to, to describe his mercy. And it's right in the middle of this great tribulation period. God shows his mercy. Today we're going to see a great display of God's mercy in the midst of His judgment. Let's read our passage in Revelation 7, verses 1 to 8. Revelation 7, verses 1 to 8. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, 
having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000. And from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. And from the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, and from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, and from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. We've covered the first four acts of wrath, or uh, the first six acts of wrath <coughs> initiated by the Lamb. And as mentioned in Revelation 7, we come to a little interlude that describes two groups of people that are spared God's wrath. Right in the midst of the wrath are these two groups. The first group we will look at today are the God's slaves from the sons of Israel. God's slaves from the sons of Israel. Again, we've seen deceptive peace, world wars, worldwide famine, global death, and stoked anger, and then great natural catastrophes that our God is behind. Notice in verse 17 of chapter 6. Look back. Seven, uh, chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. We ended the last great natural disaster with this phrase coming from those that were being judged by God. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now that question actually is answered perfectly in Revelation 7. God answers the very question of those that are being judged who is able to stand? And God gives the answer in Revelation 7. The short answer would be, the only ones that can stand in the midst of God's wrath are God's chosen slaves. They're the only ones that are able to stand against God's wrath. God's chosen ones. In this case, it's the slaves from the sons of Israel. So today we're going to kind of start with this group and answer that question, who are the ones that are able to stand in light of God's wrath and His judgment? We start with the slaves from the sons of Israel. In this opening section in Revelation 7, 1-8, we see God's mercy on display. Again, a short definition of God's mercy is what? You don't have to blur it out, but think on it a second. God's mercy is God staying His hand from His wrath or not giving what we deserve. 
In this case, he does not give these two groups of people what they deserve. Look, folks, before we get any uh, grand illusions that the people found in chapter 7 are some special group that are left behind on the earth, they're humans just like me and you. They are people that deserve God's wrath, but God's mercy is seen in this passage greatly. It's very important that God's mercy is on display here. Let's look at the setting for God's mercy. It's found in verses 1 and 2. Notice, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, at first glance, somebody might say, See, people think the world was flat at this time. No. These are most likely the four points of the compass. North, south, east, and west. And so it's pointing to the idea and alluding to the fact that these angels are covering, holding back these winds from hitting any spot on the globe. Any spot on the earth. But in this, they have this little phrase here, holding back the four winds. This holding back is literally a great struggle. In other words, they're struggling to hold back the winds. The picture here is God's full wrath is trying to break forth on the earth. All of His wrath, all of heaven, is trying to break loose onto the earth. But you have these four angels holding it back, struggling against the wrath of God as revealed in the elements. And as we'll see in Revelation 8, these angels will let go. When they let go, guess what's going to happen? Great mountains are going to come from the sky. A great mountain is going to hit the water. Most likely an allusion to an asteroid. All kinds of great things from outside in the heavens are going to break forth. But we have this picture here of these angels holding back, holding back, until the exact right moment when they are appointed the opportunity or the privilege of allowing God's wrath to come forth and His justice to be displayed on the earth. So they're holding back. It reminds me of that video. Y'all remember after Katrina, everybody, um, the next time a hurricane hits the Gulf, everybody on every news channel goes to New Orleans to watch. Right? And I remember the last time you remember... You know, New Orleans is built down in a bowl. And they have those levees. And I remember <clears throat> the closer that one earth hurricane was coming, I forget which one it was, it veered at the last minute. The, the tides got really high. And you see these little thin, it looks like cardboard, <laughs> real thin levees holding. And the wall and the, and the water is way up here. And you can look down and see all of the city just waiting for that just to crumble. It's that same concept of the wrath of God. Everything is ready to go. Everything's about to explode on the earth. All of God's fury is going to be unleashed. And how does God respond? It's very interesting. Look what He does. An angel comes and says, Hold on. Stop. Here we have these angels struggling to hold back the elements to protect the earth. 
as we will see though, they're the ones that are going to unleash it on the earth. Look at verse 2. It says, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So in other words, this angel says to those four, Wait! Wait! Stop God's wrath! Even though the world and the earth deserves (coughs) God's wrath, and it's ready to break forth, wait, stop. And he announces this. It's as if a great sword has been drawn from the warrior king. And he's about to destroy the earth. The plight's devastating. Where do they go? That's what the question was, right? Where do we go? Who is able to stand? Fall on us. Hide us. And what's God do? Which brings us to our second point, the exercise of His mercy. God gives an angel. Another angel comes. A fifth angel comes and says and announces the mercy of God. He cried out with a loud voice to the four angels. Here is a neat, neat verse. Verse 2 is a really neat verse. If you look real closely, there is a tension that's going on. Look at the verse. A huge tension. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So you got this angel. He's coming, and what's he coming to do? Bring mercy. But notice that in the verse we have our word come back up, the one that's been mentioned all the way through Revelation. That one granted, God's given. Look at it, folks, look. It was granted to harm the earth. What does that imply? Those four that were going to unleash the wrath of God were what? Instruments in the hands of a wrathful God. They were granted the ability and the privilege of bringing about this judgment. Can you give me some water? The uh, cold is kicking in at a perfect time. So what do we have? We have the wrath of God juxtaposed or right next to opposite what? God's mercy. Right in the same verse. Again, I would suggest to you, if anybody ever says, God's a wrathful God, and uh, uh, maybe a Micah, you're talking to him. Well, look, look at this verse. We have right in the midst, we have a wrathful God standing right next to that same God described as a merciful God. God is both a God of wrath and a God of what? Mercy. Right here. He's the one that's behind the wrath that's being poured out on the earth. But yet He's also the one behind what? The mercy that's being given to these people. He is exercising His mercy in the midst of His judgment. It's a wild thought. Something to think on and meditate on. God has decreed wrath and judgment, yet He's also what? Decreed mercy and grace. A group of people here, as it says in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. 
We have this idea of sealing. Someone in this uh, context, sealing someone in this context points to the idea of ownership or protection. <clears throat> Here we see the seal is a way of God saying in effect, these are mine and I will protect them from the wrath that I am unleashing. Thank you. <coughs> oh, bear with me. For some reason it just kicked in right at the right time. And I will protect you from the wrath to come. I'm convinced that this means the group will not face the judgment of God. Now this does not necessarily mean that they won't be persecuted from Satan and his sealed group, which we'll see later on with the mark of the beast. They might face persecution, they might face martyrdom, but they won't face who? God's wrath. In this tribulation period we have a group that are sealed from God's judgment. It's interesting that we see here, once again, as always, what makes avoiding God's wrath possible. What is it? How do we avoid God's wrath? Listen closely. Well, the Word would want you to say, or want you to believe, it's some good value in you. Or some good deed that you do. You get this idea, we get this concept, we're often told, well, that's a good guy, so I think he'll probably avoid God's wrath. You ask a person when they die, or you ask a person when a relative dies, you ask them this question, you say, um, do you think they are going to heaven? Nine times out of ten unbelievers, what do they say? Well, they were a good person. Well, he was a pretty good person. Folks, that is not what avoids the wrath of God. It's God that makes it possible for somebody to avoid the wrath of God. It's God that has to intercede. And here we see it. God is the one that seals them. It's His bondservants. He intervenes for the person, calling them His own and sealing them and saying, They are mine. And therefore they avoid it. In the same way today, ladies and gentlemen, I know that this is not direct application, but during the church age, there is a sealing that happens for us, correct? All genuine believers are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, why do we avoid the wrath of God? Look at Ephesians 2 for a second. It's a good interlude for us. Pastor Mark mentioned this in the funeral on Friday. <coughs> passage, great passage. I know he hates to hear that, Pastor Mark, but they did great Sunday. Or Friday. Look at verse 1, or verse 3, rather. This is talking about us. All genuine believers. Who were they before they became genuine believers? Look at the, verse, at the end of verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But then look at this beautiful but God phrase in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, <coughs> because of His great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. What's the idea? God's rich mercies, His abundant mercy, not giving us what, us, our, what we deserve, and in His love, His unconditional sacrificial love towards us, has provided by grace a way for us to be made alive. Not to be children of wrath, but now be made alive. In the same way in Revelation 7, we have this group. The tribulation has started. The church is gone. And what do we have? We have a group of people that God says, yes, my wrath is being poured out, and boom, a lot's coming. I'm going to seal me a special group. And He did. And He's going to. We have this. Again, the sealing is not the same as the Spirit's sealing in Ephesians. But the attribute of God's mercy is the same. God is merciful. Folks, listen to me. I think we're too often, um, we too often forget these things. We take for granted the mercy of God. I love how the psalmist talks. His mercies are new every morning. Should be on our lips all the time. We must understand, oh folks, do we understand who we are apart from God's mercy? Let's do a reflection again. How many of you lived a nice, perfect, holy life all week this week? How many of you always did what you were supposed to do and what God's Word said to do all week long? How many of you were always glorifying God and thanking Him for everything that He was giving you and it was on your heart and on your lips all the time, all day long, every day? But He deserves that, doesn't He? Doesn't He deserve that, folks? And yet, what do we have? A display of His mercy every day. He continues to not give us what we deserve. Continues on and on and on. And even in the great day of His wrath, He does the same thing. Oh, we serve a merciful God. I've been thinking on these displays of God's mercy during judgment. Think of them. Throughout history, Lot and his daughter being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, <laughs> I didn't want to go. <laughs> I said, no. And he literally, the angel had to grab him by the arm and jerk him out of there. No, I think I'll hang out here and take the judgment. What? The mercy of our God. How about Noah and his family? God's judgment and God saves a group, a small group. Daniel and his friends during being taken away into captivity. He does the same thing. He's merciful. Again, all genuine believers today, we are... Look, folks, do you realize the mercy that you are even here today? Think about this for a second. Our leadership this week of our country made a statement. Declared this week that June was now Gay, Lesbian, Transgender, and Bisexual Pride Month. Do you know that? That's, our, that's what we're celebrating for June. You know what this is, folks? 
This is the judgment of God on our country. Read Romans 1. Realize this, that we are in the crosshairs of God's judgment. I'm not talking about the tribulation. I'm talking about reality right now. Romans 1.26 says that God handed them over as an act of judgment to the lusts of their hearts. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what we're in. So why are you here? Answer, mercy. God's rich mercy in your life. Not because you're something special, but because God is merciful. He has granted mercy to us. We're under the judgment of God as a nation because we are a nation that's suppressing the truth as a whole. But yet, you know the truth, don't you? All genuine believers in here, if you've repented and trusted in Christ, you know what the truth is, right? You want to honor Him, serve Him. He's rich in mercy towards us. He's given us that heart to know this. That's why we can walk through the Museum of Natural History, the Great Suppression Project, and go, Wow, God, you're amazing! You made the giraffe! You made the zebra! You made the beaver! You made these bugs! You made it all! And not go, Well, that, that animal is probably 25 million years old. That animal over here must be 100 million years old. And this dog that ran across the screen in this video we watched, I don't look at him and say, oh, he's related to me in some way. But the rest of the world looks at that video, walks through that thing, and says, hmm, maybe you'll look at your dog a little bit different next time. And they think, oh, he's a distant relative of me. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it, for us? Doesn't that sound crazy? You know why it's crazy to you? Because God has been rich, mercy to you. He has opened your eyes. You know what the truth is. And if you know this truth and He is not Lord, today is the day for salvation. Trust in Him. Christ alone is your Savior. He is rich in mercy. He's exercising the mercy here in tribulation and He's exercising it here in this room today. Mercies are there. One day God's judgment is being poured out in this great way, and He will seal a special group. Let's look at the recipients of His mercy. The recipients of His mercy. Verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And we won't read all of those again. We get the rest. <coughs> Who receives God's mercy? Notice first, back in verse 3, it says, Have sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. Who's a bondservant? We've talked about this before. Many of you have probably even heard the sermon. If you haven't, you need to get online and listen to it. John MacArthur did a sermon a while back ago on the word bondservant or servant that's used in the, Old, in the New Testament. And it's translated as... Uh, servant instead of slave. Whereas in the New Testament Greek time, 
everybody considered that word, and it would have been called slave. Literally, that's how you could translate it. They have sealed the slaves of our God. Because of the bad uh, connotations in our minds of what slavery is all about, people have watered down the word, the English Bible especially, and taken that concept out and made it just the servant. But the reality is, is all those who are God's own are His slaves. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, you're a slave of Christ, a slave of God. These are His slaves that He seals. And by the way, I have absolutely no problem being God's slave. And you shouldn't either. You know why? Because those are the ones that avoid the wrath of God. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, sign me up to avoid the wrath of God and be have the privilege of being a slave of God. Would you not agree? I want to be a slave, don't you? If I'm a slave, I'm not going to face His judgment. So, we have a beautiful picture of the those who receive the mercy of God are His slaves. God has brought us through, and He brings these people through. He is a good and kind master. These people are also called His slaves, and it's a privilege. Notice here, I have a question for you, just to think on. Why the twelve tribes of Israel? Why the twelve tribes of Israel? Now listen to me. MacArthur preached a sermon on Romans um, 9, I think it was, at the Shepherds' Conference about, what, three years ago? Mark, uh, the one about dispensationalism or pre, pre-millennialism, <clears throat> remember? I think it was about three years ago. His, uh, the title of his message, I think, was Why Every Self-Respecting Calvinist is a Premillennialist. Why Every Self-Respecting Calvinist is a Premillennialist. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me give you a definition. Why every single person who really understands what election is and gets it that God is sovereign is a premillennialist, believes that God has a plan for Israel. I think this passage is another home run. (laughs) Right here. Home run. Why am I premillennialist? Why, even though I am Calvinistic and leaning, why... Am I also a premillennialist? Because he sealed 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. It doesn't say he sealed from the tribe of it, from the church, 144,000. It doesn't say that, does it? It says the tribes of Israel. So this implies what? God has a plan for Israel. And this is future. Israel is another name for who? Who can tell me? Jacob. Right. The sons of Israel are also the what? The sons of Jacob. Right. Here we have a reference to the 12 tribes of Jacob, Israel. They are not Gentiles. Get that? Listen closely. They are not Gentiles. They are Jewish Their father, their great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There, look, we can flip it around and say it says something else. It says what? Tribes of Israel. 
Now, the people that want you to believe that there is no millennium, or the covenantal theology people, want you to look at that and close your eyes and say, no, that does not mean Israel. That's what they're saying. But it says sons of Israel. If you believe in a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, <coughs> unless you read this different, that's Israel, right? Everybody get this. Show that there is a distinction, by the way. Look at verse 9. We'll deal with them next time. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues and standing before the throne. Distinction! Okay, I think I beat this dead horse. You get it, right? God has a plan for Israel. If you don't believe me, let's look at one more and it's important for you to get. Romans 11. I know I'm, I'm uh, going off on a tangent here, but it's important for you to get. Because after all, God's election is grounded in this. <laughs> he chose a people for himself. And in the case of Abraham, it was a physical people. And they were going to live in a physical land. And Romans 11.25 says, For I do not want you to be, you brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, something hidden from the past, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, that's a quote probably from Isaiah and Jeremiah, both of those. Jeremiah 31. For, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but for the standpoint of God's choice, election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Underline that. Irrevocable. They are part of God's plan. Revelation 7 makes it very clear in, Revel in Romans 11. God has a plan for Abraham, as he mentioned back in Genesis 13, 14. Let me ask you a question. Just look at me for a second. Is God ever going to flood the earth again completely? Why not? Okay, well, you know, he can promise, but then... Can't he change his mind after a while? Was his promise forever? Why? Made a covenant. Yeah. Doesn't it say in Genesis 9.16, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth? Okay, do we trust his word there? Absolutely. Well, why wouldn't we trust Genesis 13 and Genesis 17, 7 when the same word is used with Abraham? Same phrase. He says, I will establish my covenant between you and me and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Same phrase. 
Everlasting covenant. Same concept. Revelation 7 doesn't shock me. I don't go, wow. He's going to do something with the Jews again? In the future, he's going to do something with the Jews? No, it goes, everybody that understands that God keeps his promises goes, Revelation, oh yeah, now he's going to finish what he started. He said he was. He's going to. Here we are. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. It's very clear, isn't it? It's great. So why the 12 tribes of Israel? Because God is faithful to keep his promises. Real simple. He does it. He's faithful to his people. So which tribe's missing? Who picked that out? Anybody get a tribe missing? Anybody get that when we were reading it in Revelation 7? Dan. Dan is missing. Why is Dan missing? Well, Ezekiel mentions, 48, says that Dan will be included. But here, Dan is not included. I would suggest to you that Dan is not included with the 144,000, but they will be included in the promises of God, as Ezekiel 48 says. But not out of these 144 that are sealed. Why? Well, in Deuteronomy 29, 16-21, it says this. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you've seen their abomination and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them, so that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations that there will not be among you a root-bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. The idea here is, is that there will be a punishment, a judgment on the tribe that causes the iniquity of idolatry in Israel. Guess what? Judges 20, uh, 18.29-31, Dan brings idolatry to Israel. Reality, this is an act of judgment by God not being included in this 144,000. But it does not mean that all of Dan will avoid all of the promises because it's in Ezekiel 48. It mentions it again. Why is Ephraim missing? Well, I think Joseph takes their place. It doesn't say Ephraim, but Joseph's name's there. It's Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He takes Ephraim's spot. All this is showing, folks, that God's a promise-keeping God. He's faithful to His promises. That's good news for me and you, folks. We can trust God. Whatever He says in His Word, we can do what? Trust Him. He keeps His promises. He's faithful. I don't know about you, but I want to know this Word so I can know what I can stand on. The more you study it, the more you know it. What about the ten missing tribes? That's a good question. Again, many have speculated... And they say their group is the ten missing tribes. The, the Jehovah Witnesses say they're the 144,000. Their fathers are the 144,000. Ladies and gentlemen, Jehovah Witnesses, by vast majority I would suggest, are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. These are Jewish 
people. The 145,000 will be Jewish. Well, what about the 10 missing tribes, the northern tribes, right? Pastor Mark's been talking about the southern Judah and Benjamin came together and were taken away, the godly southern tribes, by the way, were taken away into what? Captivity in Babylon. But before that, the 10 tribes were taken by the Assyrians, right? What happened to those 10 tribes? Answer? Second Chronicles mentions 434-9 that the, some of those tribes were included in the return from Babylon. That those ten tribes were not lost. They were assimilated back into the Jews. How do we, we have another proof. Remember a lady, a prophetess by the name of Anna. Do you remember her? Anna. Guess who she, what tribe she was from? The tribe of Asher. It's one of the ten tribes. They weren't lost. What if we can't identify the ten tribes? That means God can't mark them out? Give me a break. Does God need DNA testing to know who are the tribes and who aren't? No. God can knows exactly who you come from. He knows all about your lineage. Because after all, He's done what? Ordained it. He made you. He knows the number of days. He knows everything. Why 144,000? We'll close with this. I'm putting everybody to sleep. These are a lot of facts. Hang in there. 144,000. Why 144,000? Because God wanted it to be 144,000. <laughs> a specific number? Yes! It's not just a big number to show a great number. No, if he wanted to do that, why didn't he do it just like verse 9? A great multitude into which nobody could count. It's a specific number. I think that says once again what? God's sovereign. Think about this. Now think about this for a second. Think about this for a second. Just take a second to meditate on this. God has 144,000 people specifically that he is going to seal and the time has not happened yet. This was written roughly 2,000 years ago. God was revealing this what? Way before. He knows exactly the number of people, the 144,000. He has to know that all those tribes are not going to do what? He has to know an exact number. How precise is our God? How much details are here? What does this say? Let me ask you a question just for a second. Think about this for a second. Tell me what's going to happen tomorrow in your life. You can't, can you? Tell me how many, tell me how many people you're going to say hi to tomorrow. Say, oh, I, can, I can figure that out, Mark. No problem. I'll do four tomorrow. <laughs> I'll just say hi to four people. Well, that's because you're I would suggest you probably won't. You can't determine that. How about 2,000 years from now? He knows exactly who he's going to seal thousands of years before it happens. How sovereign is our God? He's in complete control. Why every self-respecting Calvinist is a premillennialist? He's sealed. 144,000 people before they were even thought of by their parents. 
thousands of years before it was going to happen. God is in control. And we trust Him. Right? It's great stuff, isn't it? What can we learn from this? While God's wrath is real and a fearful thing to be meditated on, His mercy is always displayed towards His own. Praise the Lord. Do you not agree? God is faithful to His promises and everything looks to be to the contrary. Did you hear me? What if I don't feel like this is right? What if I don't feel like this promise can be kept? It don't matter what you feel. God is faithful to His promises. What if everything looks contrary? It don't matter. He's faithful to His promises. We must trust Him. And again, the details here are so startling that it should cause all of us to bow in worship of our sovereign God. This world is not out of control, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a chaotic disaster where God is looking on the world going, oh, man, that one caught me by off guard. Boy, that leader saying that really shocked me. doesn't surprise God. God is in control. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for showing these great truths to us. We don't deserve Your mercy. We don't deserve Your grace. We don't deserve this revelation of Yourself. But You are rich. Thank you, God, for being who you are and showing us who you are. Oh, Father, help us to trust and obey you in light of your glory. We praise you for revealing these truths to us. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Let's sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that the first and last thing. Can we do that? Um, what was it? 201? 43. 43. You can do it acapella. Let's try it. Let's do it. Then you don't have to worry about it. Ready? Here we go. First verse and last verse. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faith.
Father, thank you. Take us, use us for your glory. We bring us back here safely tonight. We thank you for our visitors that are here with us today. Help us to be encouragers to them. We pray this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Amen. I think I'm starting songs too low. I think so. Yeah. What's the night was really hard? Yeah, I know. Oh, well. Y'all know how to keep pitch, which is great. Praise the Lord. Thank you.